So we're getting into it. We've been in a series we're calling Dysfunctional Family, obviously trying to break the back of some of the dysfunctions that are inherent in the human family. We've been talking really about the family at every stage uh, throughout the series. On Mother's Day, we talked about a mom who wanted a child desperately and finally had one late in life and some of the stresses that she had to endure. Then we talked about a single guy who wanted a wife so bad he forsook God's ways in order to find one. Last week, we talked about marriage and some of the stresses that are inherent in, in marriage and how to begin to break through some of those things. And today we continue that journey by talking about the parenting season of the family life. If you missed any of those manuscripts, by the way, you can go to info at bridgechurch.cc, ask for Princeton, or you can get Goldsboro if you prefer, or Mount Olive. But uh, if you want this message, just request Princeton. Then if you want to follow along today and you've got a Bible app, a smartphone or an iPad or whatever, go to the Bible app the Version Bible app, go to events and click on Princeton Bridge and you can ha- you'll have all the scriptures and all the notes and everything that I'm sharing with you today. Uh, you can follow along. I hope you'll take advantage of that. And then if, if you come across anything worth tweeting or Facebooking, then put hashtag dysfunctional family on it. Okay? You want to get into it today? I got three very specific goals for message time today. First of all, I want us to look at a priest from the Old Testament and his son's Uh, who become a role model of what dysfunction looks like and the price they paid for it. Then I want us to talk about some of the principles that uh, that God defined for us in Scripture uh, as parents and see if we can learn or maybe perhaps be reminded of some of those principles. But the third goal is is the the overarching one for all of this. Uh, I I realize I may challenge some of you as parents with some of the things that I'm going to say today, but I have a feeling that for most of you, uh, it's going to be a reinforcement, a reminder of things that you already know. Uh, but, but here's the deal. We live in a culture, a counterculture, that would tell you that most of what I'm going to say to you today will damage your children. Are you out there? Is this microphone on? And so, yeah, maybe I want to challenge your thinking a little bit. You know, if you need to send me emails and get mad at me, have at it. Jim Wall at bridgechurch.cc. Feel free. But, uh, but you know what I want to do? I want to empower you as parents to do this God's way. I want you to come away and say, no matter what the culture says, here's what the Word of God says, and I want you to be able to parent in a way that you have the confidence that you're doing the best you can for your kids, because at the end of the day, every parent in this room, every grandparent in this room, that's all we want, is we want to do the best we can for our kids. Can I get an amen in the house? on that one. Eli is the priest we're talking about. Some of you may know him from Samuel fame. He's the priest that Samuel went to and said, you know, did did you ask for me? Well, this is the guy we're talking about. He was the high priest. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were kind of junior priests, you know, kind of learning how to be priests kind of guys, but they were not godly men. In fact, they were bad dudes. Maybe it's because their dad named them Hophni and Phinehas. I don't know. Maybe they were acting out from those names, but whatever the reason was, they were not good dudes. First uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 says, now the sons of Eli were scoundrels who had no respect for the Lord. Say scoundrels with me. Oh, get, get into it, a little pathos there. But, but what it says simply is that they had no respect for the Lord. That lack of respect showed up, first and foremost, in the way they handled the offerings. The priest 
uh, were allowed to take a portion of the meat offerings that were brought for their own sustenance, for their own needs. But these guys weren't taking a portion in the process that God had defined. They were taking the best cuts first and using it for themselves, taking all they wanted. They were abusing the, the system, kind of like uh, the preacher that said, you know, we don't use budgets in our church. We don't use accountability structures in our church. We just draw two circles on the ground. We've got an inner circle and an outer circle, and we go out and we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to throw the offering up, and then whatever lands in the inner circle, that's going to be yours, and whatever falls in the outer circle, that's going to be mine. That's a good budgeting system, isn't it? No, not really. But then he had a friend who said, oh, no, I trust the Lord more than you do. We don't bother to draw circles. We just throw it up and say, Lord, keep what you want. <laughs> Hear me. We can kid about it if we want to, but God takes the mismanagement of finances very seriously. Can I tell you just as a newcomer into this whole place that it's one of the things that impressed me the most immediately when I got here is the thorough way that your elders, your financial stewardship team, our executive pastor Jim Gillikin, the way they do this so thoroughly. If, you, if you've ever seen a set of the books from this church, it's more thorough than some of the banks that I've done business with. Can we just appreciate those guys who work behind the scenes to do this so well? Yeah, man, way to go. But God takes this stuff seriously. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But again, the problem wasn't the offerings. The problem was their lack of respect for the things of God. And because they lacked respect for the things of God, it led to greater problems. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22. Now Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, this is just one example of the stuff they were doing, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. You see what's going on? They've gone from abusing the offerings, which is bad. Somebody said, that's bad. To abusing the women who volunteered at church. Now, somebody said, that's really bad. I mean, these are, these are scoundrels. These are no respect for God kind of people. It's about as worse as it can get. And let me just give you a little side note just to throw it in extra and put the extra in the offering for this. There is a kingdom principle in this that if you'll be faithful in the small things, God will give you opportunity in the large things. But if you can't be trusted in the small things, don't bother to ask for the big stuff. If you can't be trusted with the finances, he said, if you can't be trusted with with worldly riches, why would I trust you with eternal riches? Just kind of put that in your mill. But if you're faithful in the small things, then God will raise you up to do amazing things that are beyond you. These young men obviously couldn't be trusted. But hear me, the deepest failure was their father's. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. So Eli, he, Eli, said to them, why do you do such things? You hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. Whoa, wait a minute, Pastor Jim. Why are you saying it's their father's mistake or his failure? Because he warned them. He fussed at them, right? It was on Eli, in my opinion, because he did fuss at them, but he should have and could have done so much more. He could have removed them from the priesthood. I mean, one of the things we talked about in the Catholic Church over the last decade, the big mistake was not that there were problems, that was huge, but the fact that they left them in the priesthood. They just sent him to another parish. That's what, that's what created all the stir. The cover-up's always worse than the crime. 
So Eli fussed at them, but he didn't put any consequences on. He had the authority to have them stoned, which is probably what my dad would have done in that setting. I think that he would have opted for the stoning option. But here's the bottom line. Eli didn't actually do anything about what they were doing, which leads to another kingdom principle that you need to lean into as parents, and that is that our kids are not, e- not eternally ours. Oh boy, he's already gone into the heresy thing. Send me emails if you got to. Our kids are not eternally ours. They are the sons and daughters of God. They are on loan to us for a season. Got it? And if earthly parents won't intervene when intervention is necessary, the Heavenly Father will have to. Do I need to say that again? You might want to tweet that one. If earthly parents won't intervene when it's needed, the Heavenly Father has to. He will because he loves his children. Eli yelled at his kids, but there were no consequences to their actions. The result is that God sent one of his prophets to Eli in 1 Samuel 2, 29 and 30. You honor your sons more than you honor me. This must stop. The prophet went on to say, because you don't deal with it, because you won't deal with it, your family will be the last ones in the priestly line in your branch of this family. Both of your sons will die in battle on the same day. And Eli still didn't do anything about it. So by the time we get to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, That's exactly what happened. They both died in battle, and when the word came to Eli, who was sitting at the gate, he fell backwards in his chair and broke his neck and died. It's got to be one of the most tragic stories in all of Scripture. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Boy, Pastor Jim, he just brings it, buddy. He just encourages us so much. It is one of those tragic stories, but I tell you that story simply because as a dad and as a granddad, I almost desperately want to learn from his mistakes so that I don't make them. I want to make sure that I do it differently than he did it for the sake of my kids, and I have a feeling you want to do the same thing. So what we're going to do in the few minutes we have is we're just going to lean into this idea of how do we avoid making Eli's mistakes. There are four specific things I believe that we as parents need to do. The scriptures lay it out very clearly how we can move from dysfunctional family to very healthy functional families uh, as parents. Let's get into it. Number one, you got to start early. You got to start early. It's a huge part of Eli's failure is he waited too long to start. Did you read, did you see the scripture? He was already an old man when he finally went and talked to him. His warning didn't come until they were already adults. In fact, what I've learned is that parenting comes in, in four different stages. Stage one is what we call the establishing boundaries stage. And that's typically, and this is, you know, it's different for each kid, but generally in the birth to five-year range, the focus of parenting is, uh, is establishing boundaries. And I'm not talking about this authoritarian, you will because I said so kind of stuff. I am talking, though, about teaching them that there are authority structures in the world. That anarchy doesn't work. Kim and I used to tell our boys when they were young, we would say, we are submitting to the Lord's authority, and your job is to submit to our authority. And when they chafed at it, we would say, 
if you can't submit to our authority, knowing how much we love you, how are you going to submit to the authority of a boss who doesn't care about you but has the authority to fire you? You've you got to learn that in this world there are authority structures, and in those early forming days of life, it's our job as parents to teach them this. That may, that may seem harsh in light of what culture says. You've got to email me, go for it, but, but hear me, guys. The cultural approach to parenting has raised a generation that doesn't know how to deal in real life. Somebody gave me a copy of the Harvard Business Reviews. Not my favorite reading, but he gave me a copy because he thought I'd be interested. There's a lead article, front page article in the Harvard Business Review that said one of the crises in corporate America today is young men and women are coming out with master's degrees, MBAs, and they're going into the workforce and finding out for the first time in their lives that you actually have to produce to get a paycheck. And they're, they're going into crisis because nobody ever taught them that this is how the real world works because they got the ribbon just for showing up. So at this stage, when you're walking across the parking lot, you hold their hand even though they say, no, 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 I want to hold yours. No, I'm holding your hand because if a car comes, I want to know I got you. Got it? Got it? Do I need to explain that one some more? We'll be here till second service gets here, but I think you're getting the point. Stage two, you ready for stage two? Stage two is the training stage, and again, this is general, but somewhere in the six to 12 age group range, and that's when you, you've established the right to teach in stage one, so now you're teaching. The saddest words I ever hear from parents, the saddest words I ever hear from parents is I can't get my kids to listen to me. The simple truth is, if you didn't do stage one well, they're not going to listen when you come to stage two. So you have no option but to go back and start stage two, even though they're older, which makes it harder, but you've got to start at the beginning somewhere, because our responsibility is the same. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 from the message, fathers, and this is parents, it's not just specific to dads, parents, don't exasperate your children by coming down on them hard. We're not talking about this authoritarian bossing them around kind of stuff, but take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. It's our job to establish the relationship, the authority structures, and then to teach them the ways of the Lord. Now, there's some good news. You don't have to do that all by yourself. It's one of the reasons for getting involved in and being a part of, not just attending services of, but actually becoming a, a, a co-owner of a church like The Bridge. Because we want to partner with you. That's, that's what we do around here. We've got Royal Rangers and Impact Girls and Bridge Kids and, and Honored Star, that, that great ceremony last night of, of, of girls that have read the whole Bible through that program. It's just amazing kind of stuff that we're just, that's all about partnering. We can't Take on the primary responsibility of training your children. That's yours. Somebody say amen. amen. But we can partner with you. In fact, Pastor Jenny has found this amazing app. I think we got a clip art for it. Uh, there's, a, there's a flyer over in Bridge Kids. You can pick it up. This amazing app that you can download for your tablet or your smartphone. I, I, boy, I'd give almost anything when I was a young father and I had young kids to have this. You can watch the video 
that your kids saw today. You can discover the memory verse that they're learning. You can get the bottom line of what they're trying to teach them in this series of teachings. And they even give you some some cool, fun things to do at mealtime, drive time, bedtime that's age appropriate for your kids. All because we want to partner with you during this training stage. The better you do stage one, establishing those structures, uh, and the better you do stage two, the, the, more, the easier stage three is, which is the coaching stage. And that's generally the teen years. Now, let's be honest. Even if you do an amazing job at stages one and two, the teen years are tough. Well, there's a bunch of teenagers and parents right here in this section. They're hard. I mean, it's hard for the parents. It's hard for the kids. It's true. Because teenagers are doing what? They're testing boundaries. They're pushing lines to find out where they are. They're trying to assert their independence. They're trying to figure out where they fit in the world. I wouldn't go back to the seventh grade for a million dollars. I mean, it's an incredibly insecure season in their lives. It's a tough, tough time for both parents and kids. But there is a shift that has to take place. I call it coaching because at this stage, you're beginning to let them call some of the plays. You are reserving the right to put them on the bench if needed. You are grounded for life. You know, stuff like that. But you're still the coach, but you are beginning to let them stretch their wings a bit. You're beginning to let them call some of the plays. Again, we want to partner with you. That's why we've got ministry like the riot for middle school and high school because now they're in a place where they're getting stretched a little bit. They're actually beginning to take on ministry responsibilities and, and they're leading worship and they're doing all kinds of stuff because we're helping them to stretch to that next place but still in a safe kind of environment. Stage four then is the friendship stage and that's when your kids are in the adult stage of their lives. Hear me, you never stop parenting. And the older parents in the room said, Amen. But at this stage, you do shift. At this stage, you shift to giving advice when asked. God bless you. Thanks for coming to church today. (laughs) Kim and I are in this season of parenting. All three of our boys are in their 30s. In fact, our oldest just turned 40. We're at that stage. Uh, and i got to be honest with you, it is wonderful to talk to your kids at this level. When they come back and say, Dad, I'm beginning to understand why you did this and why you said that. I'm beginning to get it. That just feels so good. <laughs> Zach, our youngest son that lives here in Goldsboro, is part of the Bridge family, uh, came by the other day. And we just had coffee. And during the course of you know, that uh, coffee together, we talked about golf and we talked about life. And, and then the conversation went to you know, God's purpose for his life. And I got a chance to just listen to him and let him pour it out and maybe make a suggestion or two. But at the end of the day, just I'm here to support you. That's a wonderful season when you did stages one, two, and three pretty good. But hear me, guys. Here's the problem. Stage four is so attractive. Lean in. Don't, if, you, if you went to brunch in your head, come back now. Okay, come on. Stage four, the friendship stage, is so attractive that far too many parents try to skip to this stage too young. Well, me and my kids are friends. I'm sorry. Friends come and go. There's only one mom and dad. Come on. I'm going to get emails this week. I know I am. Jim Wall at bridgechurch.cc. 
You're trying to be their friend when what they need is boundaries. You're trying to be their friend when what they need is training. You're trying to be their friend when what they need is coaching. And even in the friendship stage, you're still not their peer. You're their parent. It, it, it never shifts, guys. So if you haven't led your kids through these stages and they're still at home, what do you do? Start. When's the best time to plant a tree? Ten years ago. When's the second best time to plant a tree? Today. Start. Watch what God does as you do it his way. Which leads us to the second principle of parenting. I spent a lot of time on that one because I really think that needs to resonate in our spirits, but this is just as big. Second principle of parenting is you've got to establish a Christ-centered home. And that seems obvious in a Christian environment. But hear me, guys. We live in a world, even among Christians, where homes are child-centered, not Christ-centered. Our finances, our schedules, everything is defined around what the kids do, what they want to do, what, what sport are they involved, what music are the classes they're going to. What, it just Everything is evolved around the kids and the kids' needs and the kids' wants and the kids' desires. And you need to understand the problem with that is kids reared in that environment grow up believing they are the center of the universe and they become neurotic adults. God created us all to receive his love, to fulfill his purpose for our lives, the one that he custom designed for each one of us, and to find personal fulfillment in the process. But that, all of that requires that we set boundaries, train, coach, and love our kids into understanding that at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. What is it that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37? Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is what? Not worthy of me. Well, he went on and said, anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Why would he say that? I think he said it for two reasons. I, 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 think, I think he said it first and foremost because Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. There are no grandchildren or great-grandchildren in the kingdom of God. There are only sons and daughters. And every generation has to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. Every generation has to embrace for themselves a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think he was, Jesus was making it very clear to us that at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And our job is to help our kids understand that, embrace that, and enjoy the benefits of that so that they are ready for that. Every now and then I have a parent say to me, well, I hear you, preacher, but I'm just not going to push religion down my kids' throats. I'm going to let them decide for themselves, to which I always say, get your head out of the sand. Because if you don't train them, there are plenty of people out there who would be glad to. If you don't teach them the truth, there's a whole bunch of people out there to be glad to feed them their lies. It's our responsibility. But I think there's a second reason why Jesus said that, and it's far more personal, it's far more intimate, and it's because Jesus gave everything for us. He gave it all. He didn't hold anything back. 
He gave up the glories of heaven. He took on the form of a man. He took on the form of a servant. He served all the way to death, the worst possible kind of death. He died on Calvary through crucifixion. He gave it all for you, for me, for us. How can we give him any less? We're just getting to know each other. I understand that, and, and it's been a real neat journey for me to get to know some of you, and, uh, and I get all of that. But, but those of you that have talked to me so far, uh, you, you'll attest to most of the time, if somebody says, how you doing? My answer is, I am blessed. I, I'm, I'm so blessed it's embarrassing, I'll say. I, I'm so blessed it's scary, I'll say. I am blessed. But you know why I say that? You know why I say that? It's not just a thing to say, I grew up in a Christ-centered home with two generations, a mom and a grandmother that loved Jesus with all of their hearts, and I met Jesus very, very young. I avoided an awful lot of the scars because of it. I was pastoring at age 19 because I, I simply said, Jesus, I'll do what you want me to. Whether I'm qualified or not, you say yes, here I go. Since then, God's taken Kim and I to four continents to minister. We've planted nearly 100 churches, now 97, with five more coming online this year. The honor of planting a great church and serving it for 25 years in Chesapeake. And then, just about the time I was starting to think about retirement, I get this amazing privilege to follow in the footsteps of one of the finest pastors that's ever lived right here at the bridge. How can I not say, oh man, I'm blessed. I'm so blessed it's scary. I mean, how can you say anything? Oh, and don't even mention that I got this godly wife that has followed me all over the planet. Don't even talk about my three sons who, of whom I am embarrassingly proud and seven grandbabies, one of which said, you are ganging awesome this week. <laughs> Jesus gave me all of that. How can I not give him everything back? And if you took a minute and you wrote down your blessings, get beyond your current set of circumstances you don't care for, but just start writing down your blessings, I have a feeling you would say, I can't. How can I give him any less than all? Two. I mean, even just being here in this great church, do you understand the legacy that has been established for us, the foundation, the heritage that we have? We are blessed people just to be here, to rear our kids here, to be a part of this place. I mean, again, how can we give anything less than everything to Jesus? In fact, uh, next Sunday, June 11th, Pastor Farrell will be here bringing the message, and at the end of the service, he'll be praying over Kim and I, and we'll be installed as the interim senior pastors here at the church on June 8th, of, which is Father's Day. We'll be talking about legacy. We'll be honoring Pastor Farrell and Miss Millie that day. I hope you'll plan to be a part of those two services. And then June 25th, the very first Sunday that I start to lead you, I'm starting a series called Legacy to the HNL. We're just going to take legacy to the next level. We're going to build on the foundation that's been laid here. How can we do anything less? In fact, Jenny was out here this morning with her Legacy HNL t-shirt on. Go by the bookstore, pick up a t-shirt, take a selfie, you know. Tell us about the legacy that you've enjoyed. At the end of the day, Jesus deserves it all for a host of reasons. So live that out in front of your kids. Just live it out. Don't, don't, you know, th these stages are important, but don't waste a lot of time trying to figure out which stage you're in. Just remember that more is caught than taught. No matter how young or how old they are, you still got influence, and you get to decide what influence you're going to have in your kids' lives. 
simply by the way you live your life in relationship with Jesus. Start early, establish a Christ-centered home. Number three, pay attention to the warning signs. A huge part of Hophni and Phinehas' problem was that Eli turned a blind eye to what they were doing while they were growing up. And I don't know why. Uh, maybe it was, oh, you know, boys will be boys kind of thing. Or maybe it was, well, everybody's doing it these days. It's no biggie. I mean, whatever it was, he ignored the warning signs. And because he warned the, uh, ignored the warning signs, it cost both him and his sons dearly. It amazes me, again, how common this thinking can be uh, among Christians. When our boys were in their teen years, one of our sons went over to a friend's house and, and they had a sleepover in the treehouse in the backyard. We found out later there were copious amounts of beer involved. <laughs> so we went to the parents. They're members of the church. I'm their pastor and they're leaders in our church, small group leaders. And said, so we discovered that when the boys were over the other night that this is what happened and we thought we'd just come and talk with you and pray with you and let's partner together to help our sons. Let's deal with this thing, nip it in the bud. And they looked at us and said, oh, it's no big deal. They're just boys. That's what boys do. And we left stunned. Hear me. When your four-year-old defiantly looks at you and says, I not. It ain't cute. It's a problem. When your 12-year-old says, you can't tell me what to wear. It's a problem. When your teenager starts hiding his or her internet history, it's a warning sign. Warning signs that require intervention, that require confrontation, boundaries must be set, training must be provided. You've got to do something because hear me, guys, the four-year-old who refuses to take their plate to the sink is the 14-year-old who refuses to obey curfew. Unless those issues are addressed. And I know we all find ourselves in those situations sometimes and... and, and, and you know, maybe it's boys will be boys kind of thing and we play it off. But, I, but in my experience, quite often it's because we don't know what to do. Or we don't have the courage to do what we know needs to be done. But that doesn't absolve us from our responsibilities. Parenting is the most rewarding job on the planet, but it is also the most difficult and demanding job on the planet. It's time consuming and emotionally draining. It's just true. Kim and I certainly had our stuff with our boys uh, our middle son found out that he could climb the lattice work outside our house he could jump the three feet from the lattice work onto the roof of the house and walk around on top of the roof and see the scenery around he was three years old at the time so we hear footfalls on the roof one day we come out and adam's up there we have to I have to go up there, climb the lattice, jump across the expanse, you know, and bring him down. And we talked to him sternly and said, there will be consequences. Climbing on the, who, whoever thought they'd have this conversation with their three-year-old? Climbing on the roof of the house is a spanking offense. <laughs> Again, send me emails if you must, but I think a pat here is better than broken bones there. I just, that's how, kind of how I... Next day, their foot falls on the roof. <laughs> Kim goes out and says, Adam, what are you doing? He said, uh, 
oh. <laughs> well, you know, we told you it was a spanking offense if you did that. He said, I know, Mom, and I'll take it, but you've got to come up here first. The view is so cool. <laughs> That's a fun one to tell, as scary as it was. But when our boys got older, I made some parenting decisions that left me in a fetal position weeping in the corner. When our oldest son got into the drug world and wound up in Teen Challenge for months, it's rewarding, but it's tough. And sometimes we don't know what to do, or we lack the courage to do it. When that comes, ask for help. Ask for help. Start by praying, James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Ask God, what do I do? And when he shows you, have the guts and the faith to do it. One piece of wisdom I promise you God will give you, and I promise it because it's in Scripture, is go to church. Ephesians 3.10, God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made no, you understand that's why we constantly offer parenting seminars and blended family seminars and marriage seminars. It's not because we don't have anything else to do on Saturday and we kind of like to, you know, hang out at the church. It's because we want to help you. We want to help you to help them. Solomon said there's a wisdom in multitude of counselors. Will, will we make mistakes? Yeah. Will our kids always obey us? No. God's the only perfect parent. He only had one perfect kid. His name was Jesus. And your kid ain't Jesus. <laughs> I had a father come to me one time and said, Jim, I, I, I need some advice. My, my 13-year-old just came home from school and the teacher called and apparently she lied to us about a school assignment. And uh, this is the first time she's ever lied to us and we just don't know what to do. It's just really... Uh, kind of shocking that she did this. Do you think counseling is in order? And I said, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I would get into counseling. Uh, but not for her, for you and your wife. If your daughter's 13 and you think this is the first time she's ever lied to you, <laughs> you got some learning to do, brother. <laughs> Hear me, the best thing you can do for your kids is start early. The best time is then, but the best time, second best time is now. Establish a Christ-centered home. Watch for the warning signs. Address them as they come. And then finally, and I'll close, trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. Trust the Holy Spirit to do his work. The only thing that God ultimately requires of us as parents is to do our best and trust him with the rest. That, that's, that's it. He has an amazing way of making up the difference between what we're capable of doing and what the need calls on us for. Here's how Solomon put it for our Proverbs 22, 6. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. That phrase is actually one Hebrew word. It's the word soor. And soor literally means, I think we've got a slide for it, yeah. It literally means put away, get away from, be without. So what's Solomon saying in that passage? If you do the stages of parenting well, if you establish a Christ-centered home, if you pay attention to the warning signs and deal with them as they come, if you do those kinds of things, 
It doesn't matter how far they run, they cannot put away what you taught them. They cannot get away from what you taught them. They will never be without what you taught them. Those truths will always draw their hearts. I cannot guarantee they will not run from your influence. In fact, I can pretty much guarantee that they will. Every kid has to go through the, do I believe this because mom and dad believed it, or do I believe it because I believe it? Some do that very quickly and smoothly. Some have a very difficult time getting there, but every kid has to go through that process. I can guarantee that, but I can guarantee it by authority of God's word. If you parent God's way, they cannot get away from the truths that you role modeled and taught them. Psychologist said many years ago, stuck with me hard. She said, teenagers get their actions from their peers, but they get their values from their parents. So you teach them the values and pray hard. The Holy Spirit will do his job while they're in those years of running. I've got to close, but let me just say simply, we all want to do well by our kids. Can I get an amen in the house? We all want to do well. But let's be honest, guys, life gets so busy and we get so tired and sometimes we get so frustrated that they aren't listening and sometimes we get so confused by what it is we're supposed to do. Should we come down? Should we ease up? What should we do? Sometimes moms and dads are at, are at odds about the best way to handle these kinds of things. And the result of that, hear me, lean in, is that we have all done the same thing Eli did. We have yelled but not defined boundaries, not defined consequences, not been consistent in intervening. We've done it. Why have you left your bicycle in the driveway again? You don't think you're going out of the house dressed like that, do you? I mean, we've done those things. Come on, guys, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. We've done those things. We struggle to find the time to set boundaries and to train and to coach and eventually befriend. But hear me, guys. The result of that authoritarian approach, the Eli approach, is that tension just grows, but nothing really changes. Rules without a relationship leads to rebellion. I think I'll say that again. Rules without a relationship leads to rebellion. So we pray, Lord, let their transition from what I did my best to teach them to believe to their own personal relationship with you, be as short and smooth and painless as it can be. I'll do my best. I'm trusting you with the rest, even if they're grown. And you realize you didn't do any of this stuff. It's never too late to be a godly influence in their lives. Because we all long for the same thing that the Apostle John wrote about. In 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Whew. Days like this, topics like this, Lord, we do a whole lot of squirming because we know we are at best imperfect parents. The expectations that we put on our kids sometimes are pressure to them, unrealistic for us. 
We mean well. So would you just speak into our hearts this morning? Remind us that at the end of the day, they're your kids. That you've loaned them to us for a while and you'll help us and empower us and give us wisdom to do our best in parenting them. But at the end of the day, you're the one that's going to call them to you. Draw them into your presence. Help us to trust, Holy Spirit, that you will do what you said you would do. I pray for every child, whatever age, that's represented in this room right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in their lives right now. Keep their hearts soft and tender toward you. Let your word be hidden in their hearts that they might not sin against you even as they get older and protect them from the evil one who would steal their souls and rob them of the fulfillment that Jesus came to bring. You see us, Lord. You see our hearts. Speak your love into us in Jesus' name. Keep your heads bowed. I'm not going to keep any longer, but just long enough to pray a simple prayer. You can pray out loud. You can pray silently. Pray in your own words, but join me in this simple prayer. God, I want the best for my kids, biological kids, adoptive kids, stepkids, spiritual kids. Every one who looks to me as a father or mother figure, I want the best for them. And I want to do my best for them. So would you forgive me for my failings and help me not to wallow in them? And from this point forward, commit to do it your way. I'll start as early as I can. I'll create a Christ-centered environment for them to see. I'll watch for the warning signs and not ignore them when they come. And I'll trust you, Holy Spirit, to do your work in their hearts. Thank you for the honor of partnering with you and with your great church for the sake of our kids. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said.